So uh, let's pray together as we, as we start this time in God's Word. <clears throat> God, this is a familiar time of year. It's a familiar story. We've grown up with it. We've lived with it. We recognize it as part of our cultural traditions. We pray that as we open your word today, that you give us fresh eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts that it will respond to the truth of your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> this morning I'm going to tell a Christmas story. I'm going to read a Christmas story. I'm going to tell a Christmas story. And I'm going to apply a Christmas story. First, let me tell a Christmas story. This is the one we all know. We can all picture the scene. A small, insignificant village some six miles southwest of Jerusalem. The village is overwhelmed with the arrival of pilgrims required by the decree of Augustus Caesar to return to their ancestral home for a census. But it was not always this way. In the Old Testament, Bethlehem was an early caravan Canaanite settlement connected with the patriarchs. Situated along an ancient caravan route, Bethlehem was harbored by a melting pot of peoples and cultures since its earliest days. The geography of the region is mountainous. It sits some 2,600 feet above the Mediterranean Sea. In times past, Bethlehem was also called Ephratha, or Bethlehem Judah, to distinguish it from a second Bethlehem located in the Zebulonite territory. It was first mentioned in Genesis 35:19 as the burial site of Rachel, Jacob's favored wife. <clears throat> Members of Caleb's family settled in Bethlehem, including Caleb's son Salma, who was called the founder or father of Bethlehem in 1 Chronicles chapter 2. The poignant story of Ruth, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz from the book of Ruth is set primarily around the town of Bethlehem. King David, the great-grandson of Ruth and Boaz, was born and raised in Bethlehem, and there David's mighty men lived. Bethlehem eventually came to be called the city of David as a symbol of his great dynasty. It grew into an important strategic and fortified city under King Rehoboam. All of that took place before the exile, before the once great nation fell on hard times, before the best and the brightest, the most able and devout were removed from the land. While it's true that some 70 years after going into captivity they would return, things would never be the same again. Time after time in the ensuing years, the country and the land would be subject to a number of rulers and Bethlehem was relegated to the status of a quaint anachronism, a vestige of another day and another time, when greatness and Israel were held in the same breath. Now the jackboot of Rome firmly planted on its neck, Bethlehem was a backwater of insignificance, the least among the cities of Israel. It's a quiet night and the village and its inhabitants lie peacefully asleep, while less than a day away from this wayward village, a young couple hastens to reach their destination, consumed by anticipation and more than a little anxiety. They've been on the road for days to answer the required Roman subject summons. The journey has been difficult, 
It would be for any person of the day, but more so for this young couple, for the woman is carrying an unborn child and the time of her labor is about to commence. She feels uncomfortable. The early pangs of false labor filling her with hope and dread. She feels fat. She longs for a night where she can once again roll over onto her stomach. But most of all, she's anxious. Anxious that she will reach her destination in time to find a midwife to help deliver her, her baby. Anxious that she will have a place to rest her head before the growing power of her labor pains lead to an urgency that once begun cannot be halted until it's complete. They reach the village late the next day, a destination jammed with people unsympathetic to her plight. Things are so crowded that it is truly everyone for himself. They are alone. The young woman fully in labor, contractions coming relentlessly, the time between them shorter and shorter, a baby urgently pressing to be born. Joseph and Mary know no one in town. Desperation begins to set in. Mary utters a silent prayer, God, please help me. They're unable to find a sympathetic ear or an empathetic face until at last one innkeeper takes pity on them and offers a space in his stable, likely for the price of a room in his establishment. Their crisis is his opportunity. And after all, they should have planned better. So it was that the savior of the world was born on a quiet, holy night in an anonymous stable cut into one of the rock caves of the region, meant to house sheep and other domesticated animals, but only used as shelters for humans who didn't fit in, with no other place to go. Shepherds heard the message before the high and mighty. Angelic messengers delivered their refrain in a celestial broadcast unlike anything that had been witnessed before or since, compelling the shepherds to the stable. Ritually unclean and not part of polite society, they had the privilege of getting the first glimpse of the Christ child. They were not concerned about their lack of status. They're not concerned about their scruffy appearance. They were moved to action by the song of angels announcing the birth of a king. Not fully grasping the sight of a child in a manger, they were the nevertheless filled with wonder, fear, and great joy. A joy that surpassed their understanding and comprehension. A joy filled simultaneously with awe and peace. It was a night that they would never forget and their story would be told for the rest of time. Some months later, Magi came from the East delivering gifts to the Christ child. The creator God intervened in the celestial realm and provided a natal star to guide them. Astrologers, students of the stars and their meanings, they were drawn to the birth of a king who was not from their people or tribe. Yet they understood in the depth of their beings that he was Messiah a savior for all the earth. They somehow knew that this king of the Jews was unique, a person of importance that transcended cultural norms and understandings. So they brought gifts that held spiritual significance, gold as a symbol of kingship on earth, frankincense as a symbol of the need for a mediator priest between God and man, 
and myrrh as a symbol of the sacrificial death of the prophets. Unbeknownst to them, they were offering gifts representing the three functions or offices of this one who would be savior of the world. Jesus, the promised king from the line of David, the priest after the order of Melchizedek, and the prophet who would give his life a substitutionary sacrifice to demonstrate the truth of the message that he was called to deliver. Prophet, priest, and king, all symbolized in the gifts delivered that day by foreigners who were not from among the chosen people. And then one night soon after the Magi departed, Joseph was startled to find himself awakened by a dream, a dream so terrifying that he quickly gathered every earthly belonging that he and his precious wife Mary and his child Jesus possessed, and they ran. They fled and never looked back. They ran so that the child would hopefully be beyond the reach of Herod and his forces, who even then were in process of murdering innocent baby boys under the age of two that were then inhabiting the village of Bethlehem and surrounding towns. It would be many years before they would once more return to the land of promise with the child of promise. This is the Christmas story. The narrative that we retell year after year, passing the important details and legacy on to our children and grandchildren, so that we may never forget the miracle of Christmas. As the carolers tell it, it was a silent night, a holy night. All was calm, all was bright. But there's so much more to this story. There's a story that we rarely tell. It's the story of what was really going on behind the scenes of that little town of Bethlehem. It's the story of the heavenly battle and warfare that was going on when all the powers of evil were unleashed in a cosmic battle, fighting tooth and nail to end the story before it even began. That's the story I'm going to tell you next. And then I want to show you how that other Christmas story continues to play out in our world every day. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to page 971, where we'll read together Revelation chapter 12. Hear the word of God. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and her head, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, 
and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nursed for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. In this telling of the Christmas story, John describes two great signs in heaven. First, the pregnant woman, and second, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns. The two meet in a brief confrontation in verses four through six, but its outcome is inconclusive and its meaning unclear until an interpretation is given in the latter half of the chapter. Depending on how you read apocalyptic literature, this woman can be seen in three ways. She can represent the chosen people of imagery, as the, of Israel, as the imagery in verse one brings us back to the story of Joseph's dreams and the fulfillment of same. She can represent the church because the child that's born is immediately snatched up into heaven, clearly a reference to the ascension and the establishment of the church age. Or third, and I think for our purposes today, given that in the narrative the child is clearly seen as Jesus, she can be seen as symbolizing the Virgin Mary. We know that the child in the vision is Jesus, for John identifies him as a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Earlier in Revelation 2, verses 26 and 27, the risen Jesus had promised the church at Thyatira, authority over the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter, just as I have received authority from my father. But when he snatched back up to heaven, to God and to his throne, Jesus disappears from the vision, and the interest shifts to the woman and her fate. At the end of verse 6, the outcome of her encounter with the dragon remains uncertain, and so we're compelled to read on in the story. John identifies the dragon repeatedly as the ancient serpent, the devil and Satan, verse 9. He's further described by the evil he does. He leads the whole world astray. He accuses the people of God. He is the bringer of death and destruction. This dragon's remote past is defined by the term ancient serpent, which obviously links him to the story of Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3. Like the serpent there, this dragon in Revelation is seen as the enemy of a woman. The story told in this chapter and the next reads like an 
like an interpretation of God's curse on the serpent. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. This enmity was present already in verse 4 of our text, where the dragon confronted the woman to devour her child the moment it was born. Although the child was snatched from danger, John leaves the impression in verse 6 that the conflict is far from over, and in fact, he's going to return to it in much more detail later in the chapter. But before that comes this graphic description of the dragon's more recent past in verses 7 through 9, where we see this tremendous combat in the heavenly realm. There was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fight against the dragon and his angels, and the dragon fights back. And we get the sensation of this unbelievable conflict that's going on between the two forces, the forces of good and the forces of evil. And the good news is that the forces of evil were not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon is hurled down from heaven. He's hurled to the earth with his angels with him. Before resuming the story then, in verse 13, John hears a loud voice in heaven reflecting on the significance of the dragon's fall. The dragon's fall from heaven means woe to the earth and the sea because the devil has gone down to you. He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. And this is part of the Christmas story that we never think about. The dragon's fall means that now have come the time of salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ. The outcome of the conflict on earth is not in doubt, even before it begins. This conflict will end as the war in heaven ended, with the utter defeat of Satan, dragon, and his cohorts. More specifically, Satan's fall from heaven means that his traditional role as accuser of the people of God is at an end for he has no more access to God in heaven. The perspective is much the same as the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, where he says, Who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. No longer the accuser of God's people in the heavenly, Satan assumes the role of deceiver of the world and the nations therein, while maintaining his role as accuser of believers here on earth. But the voice in heaven makes clear from the start that God's people will not fall victim to his deceit. The voice shifts momentarily out of the time frame of John's vision to reveal in advance the outcome of the impending conflict. They overcome him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not lie, love their lives so much as to shrink from death. Sometimes the victory over the dragon comes not by physical prowess or by purity or by good works but solely by the willingness of the follower of Christ to experience martyrdom for the kingdom of God. They will be victorious in exactly the same way in which Jesus the Lamb was victorious through their deaths. Cast out of heaven and frustrated in his attempt to devour the woman's child, the dragon then pursues the woman herself into the wilderness or the desert. The dragon abruptly becomes the serpent again in verses 14 and 15. 
and the enmity between the serpent and the woman now becomes open conflict. In an extraordinary scene, the earth, regarded from earliest times as Mother Earth, comes to the rescue of one who is both woman and mother. The earth is personified over against the dragon or serpent. Verse 15, he spewed water like a river to overtake the woman and sweep her away with the torment. But the earth, in turn, helped the woman by opening its mouth and swallowing the river that the dragon had spewed out of its mouth. So the dragon who had tried to devour or eat up the woman's child meets his equal here in a creature of God swallowing or drinking up his deadly stream of water. Yet the woman's real protector is God. It's not some earth, it's not some magic, it's God himself who had prepared the desert as her place of refuge. The earth becomes the instrument by which God keeps the woman safe. Because of the advent of Jesus, the dragon has now been defeated and frustrated at every turn. First, he was driven out of his place in heaven. Next, he failed in his attempt to devour the woman's child. And when he tried to destroy the woman herself in her own place of refuge prepared by God, he failed again. Three strikes and you're out. But not quite. The dragon's last recourse is to make war against the rest of her offspring. Those who obey God's commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. To this end, he leaves the desert and is seen standing on the shore of the sea in verse 17. As we've seen, the woman's offspring in the first instant is Christ. But the focus of attention is not on the conflict between the dragon and Jesus, which was in, the, in history past. But on the conflict between the dragon's offspring, who are not fully identified, and the followers of Christ, those who obey God's commandments and hold on to the testimony of Jesus. Eugene Peterson writes of this passage, quote, Jesus' birth excites more than wonder. It excites evil, end quote. Six times in the Christmas story of Revelation 12, the dragon is thrown down by God. His defeat is certain. His defeat is complete, but not yet. As we see in verse 17, the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. We are the offspring the dragon would love to destroy. This Christmas, and every day, we find ourselves in a war with a defeated, desperate, deceitful enemy. Yet too often we find ourselves unaware that the war is even going on. It's as though we've been lulled to sleep while a cosmic struggle is going on all around us. Paul warns us in 2 Corinthians 2.11 that we ought not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. These designs have remained the same throughout time, and they're identified in Revelation 12. The three schemes of Satan are accusation, deceit, and death. Verse 10 speaks of the accuser of the brothers. This is the full frontal spiritual attack of the enemy on God's people, and it manifests itself usually in either words or wounds that we carry with us and then make us ineffective for the kingdom of God. Let me give you some examples. Have you ever heard somebody say, 
Well, I, I wish I was a prayer. I don't know how to pray. That's an accusation of Satan. If you cry out, God, I don't know how to pray. Teach me to pray. That's a prayer. And yet we fall for an accusation that's clearly false. Or you've heard somebody say, I, I just can't read the Bible. That's an accusation of Satan. That's meant to distort your understanding of who God is and what he desires for you. It's either an excuse or your pride that's preventing you from finding the word of life. You're only going to find it in God's word. You're not going to find it by looking around. You're not going to find it in the community. You're going to find it in God's word alone. So in either of these cases, you're accepting the word of Satan, an accusation of Satan as truth, when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. <clears throat> Perhaps someone has wounded your heart or your spirit. Probably all of us have this. Words that you've allowed to take residence in your heart. Descriptions of who you are. Character assassination. Harsh things. Painful things. And you've embraced those as part of your identity. And now you find that much of how you live is in reaction to a wound that you're carrying around in your spirit. That wound and the way that you carry it is a lie from the very pit of hell. Make no mistake. You've been set free in Christ. Those wounds can be healed. The scars that he has in his hands are for your wounds. Don't listen to the voice of the accuser for one more day or one more hour. His accusations are bankrupt, utterly bankrupt. They have no sway on who you are. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Christmas reminds us that the ultimate spiritual victories and freedom are available to us. We are free from any and all accusations of the evil one. He is lost. Don't live in captivity. Don't live in fear of what he has to say. It's all a lie. Claim your birthright today. And put aside the accusation. Verse 9 speaks of Satan as the great deceiver. And his second scheme is using lies and deception to lead people away from God. Every generation of Christians has to work through challenges to that which is true. In our day, this manifests itself most often as a redefinition of orthodoxy or attacks on the meaning of the atonement. But this is nothing new. Thomas Jefferson cut anything out of his Bible that spoke of the supernatural and miraculous. He didn't think it was possible, so he cut it out. Slave owners cut out the entire book of Exodus and anything that would allow slaves to understand that their natural state was as freed men and women made in the image of God. If you don't believe me, go to the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. They're on display. You can see Jefferson's itty-bitty Bible and you can see slaveholder Bibles without those passages that would confront the truth of what God's word is. 
Today, scholars and experts want to cut out anything that speaks about gender or sexual identity and sin. While their initial motivation may have been compassionate, to change the authoritative word of God who speaks truthfully about the affairs of how people are, are meant to flourish and to substitute something less than the perfect for something that is idealized in their minds is a satanic deception. Anything standing in contradiction to the authority of God's word must be examined in light of God's word. We don't look around us for opinions. We don't look to the media for our understanding of truth. We look at God's word for the only truth that we have. Or perhaps, maybe most of you are probably not on TikTok. I have students who look at TikTok. I had students come to me a few weeks ago and said, Mr. McDonald, can you tell me anything about this idea that I saw on TikTok about Jesus' death being celestial child abuse? Celestial child abuse? What are you talking about? No, I saw it. This guy, he's, he's, like, he's like this expert guy, and he says that the... No. No. To us, this sounds absurd. But if you know nothing, and believe me, the children in your neighborhood know nothing of what is true. Nothing sounds more compelling than what an expert has to say. Jesus laid down his life voluntarily as a substitute for our sin. Jesus took our sin in his body willingly of his own volition, not as a result of some divine child abuse conspiracy, out of his magnificent love for you and for me. Don't be deceived. The spiritual victory of Christmas says that the great deceiver is undone. The third scheme of Satan is that death is the final defeat of humankind, and therefore it's something for us to fear. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. If you are harboring a latent fear tied to your eventual demise, know that the spirit of the Christmas story says that death has been swallowed up in victory. The battle has already been won. Your future is secure. Nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, not even death itself. Friends, the church in the West has been so fixated on the traditional Christmas story. It's beautiful. And we've merged it syncretistically with this rampant materialism that currently accompanies it, that we have lost sight of the fact that this event unleashed the most apocalyptic cosmic struggle of all time. If we remember only the infant Jesus, meek and mild, the little town of Bethlehem lying still and peaceful, we run the risk of succumbing to some satanic lullaby that renders us useless for the kingdom of God. The advent of Jesus Christ brought in a new day of spiritual conflict for the people of God. Satan cast out of heaven, 
The plan to murder the infant child was prevented by the omnipotent sovereign God. The destruction of the woman and her offspring was thwarted. And while Satan may strike your heel, you have the authority in Christ to crush his head. But Sunday morning attendance is not enough. If we're to thrive in the spiritual battle in which we find ourselves, we need a robust ordering of our lives around Christ. For in so doing, we will be able to ward off the schemes of the evil one, the father of lies, the father of accusations, the father of deception. If you have eyes to see, you can know that you were made for such a time as this. This is why I can say with certainty to each one of you who are assembled here today, if you are in Christ, Merry Christmas. Christ has come. Though the cosmic battle rages on, the victory is certain, it is secure, and it has already been won. Please pray with me. God of creation, God of time, God of all the wonderful things that make up our world, we bow ourselves before you, acknowledging that too often we have found ourselves fearful. Too often we have found ourselves bound up with pain because of things that have happened in our past that you want to cleanse us from, that you want to deliver us from, that you want to heal us from. Too often we have believed lies. Too often we've feared death. We've been afraid of things. God, deliver us. Give us eyes to see you at work. Help us to recognize the victory around about us. Help us to see people coming to freedom in Christ. Help us as a church to recognize that we stand on the forefront, the edge of history, with an opportunity to transform lives. And may we live in that victorious knowledge because of what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.